that stack of books, the, um, see, I'm already doing it, <laughs> the Hay Fever Edition. <laughs> I'm Steve Scherer. I'm Nancy Pearl, and we're here at Bryant Corner Cafe um, talking about books. Yeah, just you and me today. And uh, we'll be back in our regular schedule soon. People should check the Facebook page and the emails you send out right. and get on that email so you can be a part of it. Follow us at That Stack or Facebook page, thatstackofbooks.com. No, that's our homepage. Follow it there, too, and at the Facebook page, That Stack of Books with Nancy Pearl and Steve Scher. All right, I, I spent a lot of the last month traveling in the South on a civil rights pilgrimage and reading a lot of books about the civil rights era. And you have a couple books. I bet I know this one I've never read, and you have another one to I talk do. about. Yeah. I do. I have two. I have two wonderful books that, um, if I, you know, I sort of often joke that if I could just get ten people to read some of these fabulous books, maybe that would change the world for the better. Um, but I, I was thinking about these especially, Steve, because I was following all your tweets and oh, your, your posts as, as you did that civil rights pilgrimage. Um, and so the books I want to talk about today, one is nonfiction and one is a novel, but the nonfiction one is a book called Carry Me Home, Birmingham, Alabama, The Climactic Battle of the Civil Rights Revolution by a white um, Birmingham native, Diane McWhorter. And I think if you're going to read one book about the, the, the end of the civil rights movement, the, the, the end of that era, um, this is the book to read. It's, it's a big book, as you can see. There's, you know, detailed appendices, um, epilogue index, many, many notes. But the book is such, it's written so smoothly and with such care that it's, a, it's one of those books that's very hard to stop reading once you begin it. So, all right, Carry Me Home, Diane McWhorter. It says the climactic battle of the civil rights right. movement, Birmingham, Alabama. Right. So what's its in, era? In 1963. That's, that's what she... Oh, she's, oh that's yeah, interesting. Yes, and so she's, um, you know, focusing on those, that period when the movement that Martin Luther King Jr. began really started systematically toppling... Um, uh, uh, um, yeah, institutions, <laughs> yeah, yeah, institutions that carried on um, that kind of, um, of course, legalized I have to tell segregation. You that you said something that is at the root of this civil rights pilgrimage, and people would say, "Oh," so I have to bring it up. The argument that people are making now, and uh, historians are making, and and books are coming out. The King, great as he was, and and. Uh, a. Philip Randolph, all those folks that had be, been leaders at the mm -hmm. top, the, 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 the work that was done that actually got those toppled were the children, were, were kids in Birmingham, yeah. kids in Nashville, and kids and then college students all over right. the South who, you know, they were the ones that, the, the foot soldiers that we go to meet on this trip, they were the ones that actually... Yeah. <laughs> What is it? Le the leaders led from behind in some ways because yeah. they were pushing so far ahead. And of course, that's what I'm sure that's what she writes about in this right. in and the book. Yeah. And, and, and they're the ones who, in many ways, put their life, their lives yeah. on the line in a way that's hard for us to imagine. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Right hard. now. Yeah. People that yeah. were, and, and then 
so the, and then the people I have met who were deeply part of that movement are the most gracious, forgiving people. And we and we always have this question, like, how can you be right. not hateful? And they said, well, because I, the whole two things. They said the whole point of this movement wasn't was not hatefulness. We met a guy in Birmingham who had been part of the movement and had been arrested a bunch of times and then went on to do work and uh, further in the south. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, 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 further into the years. Uh, he said, I was taught that everybody was my brother, and I meant that. And, and I say, you're my brother, you're, I mean that. Yeah. Well, it's reminiscent of, um, of the, the sort of politics of reconciliation that we, that we see going on in Africa between, for example, the Hutu and the Tutsis. Um, you know, and how do you forgive somebody who chopped off your arm or killed your children in front of you, and yet that's going on? Sometimes I don't think I have the forgiveness gene in me. Uh, it's you know you meet those folks who do have it and it's infectious, and it, it you get really? you get it's like a virus a virus of love, because that is the one problem with American history right we never have had that truth and reconciliation right and that's why we have that's why we have Donald Trump right. able to stir up people hating the other, yes. because we just don't have that uh, we have never had that process. And, and why do you bad. think? I mean, do you, wh- I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, you know, American, the history of race in America, the, the deliberate effort to create um, negative stereotypes, negative status, all that stuff that, that the, white, you know, the white establishment began to both justify their slavery and to make it fit within their religious code. Right. Seems to have been sort of like parallel things. They just... They just weren't going to allow... I mean, there have been slave societies for for eons, right? But, I mean, the Romans had slaves. And, but it and wasn't quite... This, it hasn't been this sort of... This, this terrible, you know, uh, denigration of of people and and uh, and demanding that we perceive them as less than human and i wonder if that doesn't go back and other people i think have said this far more eloquently than i could but if it doesn't go back to that whole that whole period of the middle passage of us bringing these people to be lesser yeah well and you know it's brutal they justify the brutality right. and then they wanted to justify their wealth because the wealth of this nation, once you start studying it, right, the wealth of this nation built upon the backs right. of people who were not paid, right. you know, that they were sla- enslaved. And so I think, I think just people needed a mechanism and they, you know, psychologically needed some kind of mechanism. And now it's uh, people refuse to, you know, under, understand that the idea of, of reparations is not a monetary Right. Notion. Right. It's it's a reconciliation notion. Hard for people yeah. to say. I mean, do you know that the, the after the after the war, as the war ended, there were uh, constitutionally mandated freedmen's bureaus, which were set up to um, provide shelter, health care, and education to recently and uh, you know recently freed people, and they actually existed for a while. And that's why we have some of these historically black colleges. Yeah, right. And then as soon as the end of Reconstruction, right. Right. they were just defunded. Yeah. 
And isn't that interesting? Because there is a chance, it seemed to me, where, there where is a chance. Real change could be. Yeah. Real change could so be made. So does, does this book uh, must include then the bombing of the yes. Birmingham church? Yes, yeah. That, that's uh, almost not a center point of it, but, uh, but it's hard to look at that era and that year, that period, without focusing on, on the death of those, you know, four little girls well, it was definitely on Birmingham a flip Sunday. Too. It was a big flip yeah. for people's perceptions and... The things that came after, Freedom Rides, before and after, and Selma. I mean, yeah. it was it, it's where the media's power showed itself, because they were there with the ho and the hoses, and yes. the kids getting blasted by the fire hoses. Birmingham was critical. Children's March. It's, it's sort of, you know, there was a Children's March <laughs> centuries ago. Um, in you know, in uh, against the Moors, right, which, right, right. You know the same. I forget kind which of monk led that. But. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't remember who did that. I read it. I read a children's book about it. The Children's Crusade. It was That's called. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, a little child shall lead them. But Diane McWhorter's book is, I think, necessary reading. And uh, you know, we have a lot of people growing up you know coming of age who haven't didn't live through that period and and don't understand what it was like and not always not always convinced that our history classes do a good job teaching yeah. that period because it is such a you know such a, 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 a such a difficult subject to talk about race and to talk about the history of um, of segregation so a book like Diane McWhorter's, I always think, makes a great book for a book discussion because then you're focused on a book and you can talk about these difficult subjects, it seems to me, uh, in, in much more easily than you could if, if we, you just sat down and said, okay, we're going to talk about race. Yeah, I agree with you. One of the women we met at the 16th Street Baptist Church was named Carolyn McKinstry. She was a reverend now she's a religious leader now um, that was not her church but a church she always went to yeah. and they were those were her friends and she was just outside the door wow. when the bombs went off so they were she lost her friends and it destroyed her for many years but again a person who talks about um, reconciliation and forgiveness and so today it does that and she wrote a lovely book about that and that always seems like a difficult thing, part of what we had talked about, but that's the philosophy, and it's a remarkable philosophy. Because otherwise you get consumed with hate, you get right. consumed with bitterness. But how do you choose to forgive when the person that you're choosing to forgive has no intention of reciprocating? Because you do it for yourself, they say, and not, not for that person. It's an amazing concept. I, it's difficult. Yes, it's very difficult. Very difficult. So the, 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 the novel that I want to talk about, and I want to talk about the author, especially because all of his books are, are, are so worth reading. But um, he was a Mississippi writer named Lewis Norden, N-O-R-D-A-N, and, and very few people have read him. His, his books came out in the early 90s. Uh, um, but there's something about Mississippi writers think of Faulkner, who are just great storytellers. And Lewis Norton's books, I think, 
were never, they never got the popularity that they deserved. They never got the, forget popularity, they never got the readership they deserved because they're so hard to describe. And anything you say about them, you can sort of see people recoil in horror. So, um, or, or discomfort, horror may be too strong. So the one, the one that's especially relevant to, um, <laughs> to this subject and to your trip is called Wolf Whistle. And all of Lewis Norton's books are set in a small Mississippi hamlet called Arrow Catcher, Arrow Catcher, Mississippi. And Wolf Whistle is loosely based on the lynching of Emmett Till. And in, in Lewis Norton's hands, this book is hilarious and heartbreaking and sweeps you up into that time and place. Uh, you know, people living in poverty in this small, hot place where a young boy is visiting from Chicago and he whistles at... Um, at a woman who happens to be the wife of one of the town's most important men. And we know what happens as a result of that. But the but this book is just, um, I mean, it's amazing. I, I mean, somebody read this book and then write to us and say, yay or nay, you know, worth reading or not. I, I, Steve, you you need to get this book. No, I think I need to read you it. You need it to read wonderful. it. His other, his, my other favorite of his books is called The Sharpshooter Blues. And it's about, um, a, 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 you know, a teenager, a youngish man um, who picks up a gun and kills the two people who are probably closest to him. And, and I, I mean, just thinking about the subjects of these books and how Norton weaves these surreal tales out of it is fabulous. You know, one of the realizations that I've had f with these trips is that this is our responsibility to change because we're the one, we white people are the ones who have carried this carry this ugliness forward, carry this prejudice in our hearts. So there is, there is an argument to be made that, that, that the more white people who start telling these stories, maybe there will be you know, an awakening. That's part of the truth and reconciliation because it's our responsibility to figure it out. Here's a quote from Norton I just found. You're going to oh. like this. I knew the murderers, he told NPR in 1993, the two white men accused of killing Till, who were acquitted by an all-white jury. But I didn't know that a little white boy growing up in the South who was in some ways even implicated in the guilt just by my whiteness had the right to write such a story, and so I repressed it. I kept it in my heart and in my memory for all these 38 years since the event, but I was obsessed with it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a real problem. I mean, I think that that, that that would stop somebody in their tracks what right do I, as a white writer, have to, 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 to portray this horrible event? And then, in addition to that, add that Mississippi weirdness to it. You know who Brian Stevenson is? I do. The author of Just Mercy. Um, remarkable man. Wrote a yes. remarkable book and does incredible yes. work to get people out 
of death row who are either there for wrongly being convicted or f focusing on young people who were given these death in prison sentences right. when they, for crimes they committed when they were 13. Yeah. Um, his, their latest uh, effort is, uh, is a frighteningly uh, profound thing they do, which is there were more than 4,000 lynchings in the South between 1870 and 1940, and they have started saying, this is where we need, this is ground zero for reconciliation, this is where we have to admit what happened in America, and that this was terrorism, this was racial terrorism, yeah. deliberately done by, by groups of, of white, usually, you know, white people in some sort of power, uh, and sometimes done through the, yeah. you know, through the, um, the culture, so you'd have 10,000 people show right. up these horrible lynchings. And, uh, so what they're doing is to give each of those people a name and a place is they're sending out groups to the sites of these lynchings and they're having the groups dig up the soil from where the lynching took place putting in these big five gallon glass jars and putting the name and the place on it and then putting it on a wall in their offices eventually they have some other idea for it but just that walking into the office and seeing those jars and then we participated in, in this it's just it both drives it home and makes you sick to your stomach to think that this was how, you know, this is how America operated, yeah. and it was not, you know, nobody stopped it for, for what, 80 years. So that's a book worth reading, but painful. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I I I think it's hard to have a, I think it's impossible to write an honest book about race and race relations without having it be painful. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, there's some books. I uh, I'm going to talk to the author Touré, and I'll run some run that on our on our podcast Good. after I interview him. His book from 2011, "Who's Afraid of Post Blackness: What It Means to Be Black Now." These issues aren't gone, right? No. The civil rights era did end, like you, but it, the problems were not solved. No. In and, the end. Right. Right. And I mean, and you can see how they've come back with Obama's presidency and are unlikely and are not going away in this in this um, election cycle at all so I I, I, it, I mean I'm a, I'm a pessimist and I'm just feeling pretty darn depressed about the world yeah well we'll see how it goes but I guess the only thing that gets me is that is books like these uh, Bernard Lafayette who was beaten terribly uh, on the Freedom Rides, when the leaders of the Freedom Rides turns around and writes some amazing books that people should check out. And at the core of those books is his continuing effort, ongoing continuing effort, to teach and train nonviolence all over the world, uh, all in Africa, in South America, and in America, in the U.S. And, uh, you know, somebody like Carolyn McKinstry, people find a way to, you know, who realize that that you're, if you're full of hate, you're, you've 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 lost. You know, you've yeah. succumbed. Right. And what you have to be is angry, yeah. and uh, and you know determined to to make the change. Yeah. So Mark Twain said that the mark of a first-rate intelligence is to be able to hold two opposing ideas in your mind at the same time. So you know that, for example, you see that life is hopeless, but at the same time you, you're determined to make it otherwise. I've always remembered that. No, he was great. <laughs>
All right, we'll end on that. Think about some of his books. Some of his books where he tried. He tried yeah. to grapple with issues of race from his right. from his era. Right. Uh, yeah. One step at a time, right? All right, Nance. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Talk to you again, folks. Uh, check out the various uh, websites and at that stack and that stack of books. Dot com and that stack of books on Facebook and we'll keep you posted on when we're back here at the Brian Corner Cafe and other places. We will. Happy reading. <laughs>